This is Fresh Air. I'm David Bean Cooley, in for Terry Gross. David Joeliker, otherwise known as Trugoy the Dove, or Plug 2, of the influential hip-hop group De La Soul, died Sunday at the age of 54. No cause was given, though recently he revealed he had congestive heart problems. In 1989, the group released its first album with such fun and funny tracks as this. That's from the album Three Feet High and Rising. The group was known for sampling widely from Steely Dan, Benny King, George Clinton, Lee Dorsey, Liberace, and others. De La Soul's members were middle class and suburban from the Amityville area of Long Island. Their music offered an accessible alternative to the grittier urban version of rap. David Joeliker, or Dave, founded De La Soul while still in high school with his friends Kelvin Mercer, otherwise known as Pas Danus, and Vincent Mason, known as Mace. They were discovered by DJ and producer Prince Paul. They produced eight studio albums. Their album Three Feet High and Rising is in the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry. Terry Gross spoke to Dave and Mace in 2000. Let me uh, play something from the first De La Soul record, Three Feet High and Rising. And um, uh, this is, uh, three is the magic number. I mean, we're, we're talking about what, what kids listen to. And um, on this CD, you, you pay tribute to a type of kid song I imagine you grew up with, which is multiplication rock. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so this, this kind of takes off from there. Let, let's hear it. This is Three is the Magic Number. That's a magic number. Yes, it is. It's the magic number. Somewhere in this hip-hop soul community was born three mates dubbing me, and that's a magic number. Difficult preaching is posthumous pleasure. Pleasure in preaching starts in the heart. Something that stimulates the music in a measure. Measure in the music breaks three parts. Casually see, but don't do like the soul. Cause seeing and doing are actions for monkeys. Doing hip hop hustle, no rock and roll. Unless your name's Brewster, cause Brewster's a punky. Parents let go, cause it's magic in the air. Criticizing rap, so you're out of order. Stop looking, listen to the phrase and fret the stairs. And don't get offended while Mace Dosi does your daughter. A dry camera roll system is now set. Fly around the store under Daisy Productions. It stands for the inner sound. Y'all in your cabet that the action not a trick, but show not a function. Everybody wants to be a DJ, everybody wants to be an MC, but being speakers are the best, and you don't have to guess. Still, I so posse consists of three, and that's a magic number. Three. This year, piece of the pie is not dessert, but the cost that we dine, and three out of every darn time, the effect is mmm, when a daisy grows in your mind. Showing true position, this here piece is kissing the part of the pie that's missing Where that negative number fills up the casualty Maybe you can subtract it, you can call it your lucky partner Maybe you can call it your adjective 
But odd as it may be, without my one and two, where would there be? My three makes possible me, and that's the magic number. What does it all mean? Focus is formed by flaunting the That's from De La Soul's first CD. It was really refreshing, I think, to hear rap that was ironic and really playful. And I'm wondering if you were almost afraid to do that then because it was so different from the kind of more hardcore rap that took itself really seriously. No, we weren't afraid. I mean, that's really where we come from. That's what we knew. So that's what we knew to implement in our music. It was an innocence. We paid no mind to what was happening on around us. I mean... You know, the people that we were, we admired and looked up to were the Run DMCs and the Public Enemies and the LL Cool J's and KRS-1's. And, you know, none of these groups sound anything alike. You know, everyone was doing their own thing. So to step into the game or even try to introduce our game, ourselves to the game was like, okay, well, we're bringing our own thing to light also. And um, there was an innocence there that, 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 you know, paid no attention to fads, what was in, you know, um, what was selling and what was not and what wasn't. It was just, you know, a couple of kids just getting together and having a good time and, and, and giving a product to a company that had bigger plans for it, you know. And um, that's where it was with us. So, I mean, to, to sit back and really analyze the situation and say, wow, are we going to make it? Is this going to be accepted or what have you? That was, that was no concern of ours. Not only didn't you want to go along with fads, you had a, a song on that CD called Take It Off in which yeah. you urged people to throw away, throw away stuff that was faddish, whether it was you yeah. know, clothing or ideas. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I think you know, that's one of the things that we did try to you know make the the the, obviously the highlighted theme of three feet high and rising in that era was you know individual individualism you know people expressing themselves you know the way that they choose you know if you want to cut your head cut your hair bald if you want to grow dreads if you want to put parts if you want to um braid or what have you you know just because everyone's rocking afros it doesn't mean you can't go against the grain you know we all have our own interpretation of what fashion is in style um and why not express it you know and that's where it was at with us why don't we hear just a little bit of take it off take it off Acid washings, bell bottoms, designed by your mama. Off, off, please, please, please. There's more music from De La Soul's first CD, Three Feet High and Rising. My guests are two of the three members. Um, what, what's the range of reactions you got to that first CD, which was filled with, with, with humor and irony, and we'll get to this later with samples for, from just all kinds of different music. I mean, people, people loved what we did. I mean. Um, I have to honestly say that's my favorite and probably will be the best album um, that I felt like we've ever done. Like I said, there weren't no, there weren't any boundaries. We were just some young kids having a good time, and people respected it for that. It was like, wow, these guys aren't really, 
you know, afraid to give themselves 100%, whether you thought it was childish, whether you thought it was uh, funny or whether you thought it was ingenious. It was just, you know, people accepted it. People was like, wow, I always wanted to do something like that, but I just was afraid to put it on, you know, on tape. I always wanted to sample that, but I didn't think it would work. And, you know, um, it was all, always good to hear, you know, the toughest of the tough, you know, the gangsters, the, you know, someone like a KRS-One at our first release party, you know, like just praising us like, wow, De La Soul, you guys are incredible. This is crazy. Or D, uh, or uh, DMC from Run DMC having to get to our first show that we ever did was like, yo, I got to be here front row. I got to be right in the front, you know, and it was like it was good to see those people that, you know, went out and bought records, you know, uh, from for years just loving what we did. It was excellent. And then on top of that, meeting people throughout touring through the years and telling us, you know, like one guy approached me telling me that he met his wife buying Three Feet High and Rising. And yeah, and other people saying that, you know, you guys, you know, if it wasn't for you, I was, you know, I, I was going to commit suicide. And, and stuff like that. You know, things like that are always good. So aside even from, you know, our peers in the game itself, you know, just people as a whole just like kind of, Three Feet High and Rising was some sort of a magnet to people just opening up. So, you know, it's a good feeling to, to hear things like that. Did you think anything was misinterpreted? I think the only thing that maybe was misinterpreted that people kept classifying us to be hippies. You know, when we didn't really have an understanding of what that was all about, you know. Um, I, I wonder how much cool. of that just came from the design on the album jacket. Yeah, which yeah had, like, it came from the design. On it and, uh-huh. Yeah, people misinterpreted misinterpreted the look. You know, I mean, I think people thought that we were going out um, trying to, uh, um, I guess, advertise ourselves as you know this fun loving you know '60s hip hop group. And I was born in the late 60s. I knew nothing about, you know. <laughs> I'm a 70s baby you know, so, <laughs> Um I think that's that's the only thing that kind of, like, got at us was, like, you know, when it came do- down to publicity and advertising the record, people always wanted us to take pictures with flowers and make sure you wear yellow and lime green. And, you know, it was <laughs> like, you know, well, I want to wear brown today, you know. So it was that kind of a thing that was kind of a bit annoying. The samples on that first CD included Steely Dan, Liberace, Otis Redding, the Jarmels, who did a little bit of soap, Stand, uh, Stand By Me, I think, is sampled on it, the Benny King record. Mm-hmm. There's a French mm-hmm. language instruction record. How did you know all these records? Parents' record collections. Yeah. That's really what it was. I mean, I was kind of hung up in the funk era and reggae era with my parents and my uncles and stuff, and... And my parents were listening to Perry Cuomo, Liberace, <laughs> really? Sam Davis Jr., and, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And, and, and Pa's parents have a real strong Southern background. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so they listen to a lot of Otis Redding and, and, yeah, you know, a lot of a- stuff that was on this popular station called ABC back in the day. Oh, yeah, home of the good guys. Of, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Where we got... You know, and then of course Prince Paul, who collected stuff like Multiplication Rock, Rock and Mickey Mouse records, and you know all sorts of Kitty records like that. So just you know, the, the, you know everybody bringing their fourth into it made Three Feet High and Rising what it was. So are these all records that you really liked, even if you liked some of them for being really bad. I mean, for just really being so awful that they were fun. 
Oh yeah, you. I mean, you're always gonna find something. I, you know, it's not every record. I mean, there are a lot of records that are in our crates that you know are just like you know just for one thing. But that one thing makes it special. That Liberace record. Yeah. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna sit here and say that I listen to Liberace all day. But you know, so that that introduction was just incredible. You know, and and that worked for De La Soul. It was like you know that had to go on the record. Well, I think we'd better hear the Liberace sample. All right. And now for my next number, I'd like to return to the classics. Perhaps the most famous classic in all the world of music. World of music. World of music. World of music. The first time around, you didn't quite understand I'm gonna start speak. Don't worry, we can fix that right now. So why don't you all just grab your bag? Come on board and hoist the answer. We'll be off. That's from De La Soul's first CD, Three Feet High and Rising. My guests are two of the three members of the group, Dave and Mace. So when you started um, sampling, uh, I'm wondering if you started shopping for records in a different way than you ever did before, just looking for, for cool things to put on your own records. What's, what's so funny, the method of shopping for records was kind of like really different. I mean, and it's like that for a lot of hip-hop artists. We sometimes are clueless of the artists and what music they play and what instruments or what type of music it is. We, sometimes we just, we're looking at a couple of things. We're looking at the year. We're looking at what instruments are being played. We're looking at the font on the record. If it looks like it's psychedelic, that might have something different. If it looks jazzy, it might have, you know, we're, we're looking at a lot of other things more than who the musician is and what the songs are you know it's it, it's funny how we shop for records it really is it's you know you're looking for certain labels you like i said you're looking for the font on the album cover and you're looking for the year do you mostly go to used record stores and look for vinyl or do you use cds for sampling too i personally look for vinyl due to the fact that i'm a dj and i highly support vinyl and when I am DJing, I like to put a lot of obscure scratches into what I'm doing sometimes, let alone playing some of these old records. You know, some of these old records that I've been looking for, like a King Floyd record or Otis Redding record that I would love to play in a party, like to play a certain break in a party or something like that, and then go into my next tune. So I'm highly supportive of shopping for vinyl. It's just a, a DJ thing. It is. I think just, you know, seeing how many much how much more records you can just load into that garage that's already <laughs> looking like a, a, some sort of a... Record store. <laughs> you know? A, a record junkyard. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's just, it's just, it's always a good feeling also to just crack that new plastic and then put something on that turntable and hope that you find the most incredible, you know, uh, horn section or drum loop. or It's just exciting. How did you guys meet in high school? Um... I met Dave in English class. Yeah, with Miss Scahan. Miss Scahan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we, we just met each other in school. Mace was a popular DJ in the neighborhood. He came out of Brooklyn and came in came into Amityville and started doing a lot of parties here and there and coupling up with a lot of rappers in the neighborhood. And when we were all doing it just for a hobby, just for doing our little basement parties here and there, and he, he was a popular DJ at the time. Myself and Paz were... Um, 
rapping in the basement, making tapes with our own group. And then we just, like, started hearing about each other. And and one day it just actually meshed where it was like, okay, let's let's try something. Let's make a tape. And that's what it, that's what it was about back in the days, making a tape at home, seeing if you come up with your own little songs, and then maybe somewhere down the line going to a party and performing and just, just young kid stuff. And I met Paul on the party scene in Amityville. Yeah. What was the party scene in Amityville like? Basement parties, backyard parties. Dark basement parties. <laughs> Dark and dugout parties. You know, the little red light bulb and there's like a, a basement filled with maybe like 70 people and everybody dancing. All the dancers were out at the time. And then backyard parties in the summertime, people would throw backyard party speakers and they'd fill their backyard. And I mean, that was back when I was DJing and I was also playing slow records. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't play slow dance at the red parties anymore. <laughs> I'm wondering if either of you had parents who were uh, very political and not necessarily voting booth politics, but just in, ha- in terms of having a kind of political social analysis of, uh, of class and race in America, and if they talked to you a lot about that. I think we grew up with parents who just, you know, had, you know, moral backbone. It was like, you know... I'm not sending my kid out in the street looking any old way. I'm not going to send my kid out in the streets or into school, you know, not knowing how to speak, you know. I mean, yeah, we heard curses around the house, but you know that that's where it was—that's where you kept it and that's it. And if mom and dad cursed, it was mom and dad cursing. I wasn't the one that's supposed to follow right behind or say it out in the streets or say it to anyone else. You know, my parents were— were very strict and and you know if we got out of line you know we we got dealt with also and you know it just carries on you know at the time you know you're like oh mom and dad or or mom or whoever you know their pains or what have you but it paid off and i you know it doesn't necessarily take you know mom and dad in the household perfect example is mace and it's like you know um seeing how his mom was and, you know, just being in a small part of his life and how his mom seemed to be as a person. It's like Miss Mason raised us, myself, Paz. You know, it's like, you know, when you when we weren't at home with our parents, she was there making sure that we were in order. You know, so I could imagine how it went down in his, in his house. I grew up in a single-parent home. You know, I come from a lot of the struggle that, that these rappers talk about. I've been on welfare. I've lived from house to house. I lived in one-bedroom apartment putting milk on a windowsill. And, you know, the, regardless of all the tribes and tribulations I've been through with my mom, my mother's my hero. You know, she's she's she struggled, and she struggled to really provide a good life for me and my brother. She did everything possibly under the sun to make sure that we've had a pretty stable life, you know, working odd jobs as well as having public assistance. So. Yeah, I mean, and sometimes it goes just further than just putting food on the table. I mean, you know, after they put food on the table, they made sure that you held the fork the right way and, you know, you and didn't stuff your mouth like a, head. Yeah, and those things were more important than, you know, her working or 12-hour shift or what have you, or um, my mom and my dad trading up on shifts and, you know, you babysit them then while I go on. It's like, you know, a lot of things, a lot of other things were important to them too, so... That's kind of what molded us to be the people that we are today. Well, I want to thank you both so much for talking with us. Thanks for having us. De La Soul members David Joliaker and Vincent Mason, popularly known as Dave and Mace, speaking to Terry Gross in 2000. 
David Joliker died Sunday at age 54. Beginning March 3rd, the music from the first six albums by De La Soul will be available for streaming for the first time. After a break, science writer Ed Young explains how animals perceive the world differently than humans. And film critic Justin Chang reviews the new movie Emily, focusing on novelist Emily Bronte before she wrote Wuthering Heights. I'm David Cooley, and this is Fresh Air. May I cut this dance to introduce myself as the chosen one to speak? Let me lay my hand across yours and aim a kiss upon your cheek. The name's Pluck Two, and from the soul I bring you the daisy of your choice. May it be filled with the pleasure, principle, in circumference to my voice. About those other jennies I reckoned with, lost them all like a homework excuse. This time the magic number is two, cause it takes two, not three, to seduce. My destiny of love is brought to an apex, sex is a mere molecule. In this world of lust that I have for you, it's true, true. It's time to let this rhyme style get somewhat poured in the mold. Hold my hand and we'll pick my plantation of daisies for a bouquet of soul. So we get at the cut of a rim. Take it as filled to the rim as in brim. Squeeze your stoop like Betty Boop, then make camel alphabet soup and spell plug ones within. Forward margin to say when transistors will play. Come into bed is the move. Dolby sound will be then top crown when I put the needle into your groove. After winning the Pulitzer Prize for his reporting for Atlantic Magazine on the first year of the pandemic, science writer Ed Yong shifted his focus. Instead of examining the catastrophes and tragedies caused by COVID, he moved on to a facet of the natural world he hoped would bring some joy to his life and to his readers. The result is his book, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. Last month, it was awarded the Carnegie Medal for Excellence. It's almost like science fiction or the supernatural in that it describes the worlds that animals, birds, and insects perceive, which humans can't. The sounds, smells, colors, vibrations, echoes, and magnetic fields that exist beyond the limits of our senses. As he puts it, Every animal, including humans, can only tap into a small fraction of reality's fullness. The book is about the diversity of perception in the animal world and the limits of human perception. Ed Young spoke with Terry Gross last year. Ed Young, welcome back to Fresh Air. Hi, thanks for having me. So your book is about how every animal, including us, is enclosed within its own sensory bubble as you put it, perceiving but a tiny sliver of an immense world, which leads to the world word umwelt, which is a word I'm sure you'll be using. So why don't you describe what it is? Uh, so Umwelt um, was uh, popularized by a, a German a biologist named Jakob von Uxkull. The word comes from the German for environment, but von Uxkull wasn't using it to mean the physical environment. Um, he meant the sensory environment, the unique set of smells, sights, sounds and textures that each animal has access to 
and that might be unique to it, its own little bespoke sliver of reality. Um, so I'll give you an example. Like humans um, can see colors ranging from red to violet, but we don't, uh, we aren't able to see the ultraviolet colors that actually most sighted animals can perceive. We can't detect the magnetic field of the earth that songbirds and sea turtles can. We can't detect um, the ultrasonic frequencies that bats use to navigate around them or that that rats and mice use to send um, messages to each other that we can't hear. So every creature has these sensory limitations and is enclosed in its own particular sensory bubble, and that's what the Umwelt is. Where are you now? Uh, I am in my home in DC. Uh, I am in the recording studio slash shoe closet uh, of my bedroom, <laughs> or as my wife calls it, our studio. Okay, so it's not exactly a, a rich sensory environment, but if you it is not if you were one of the animals you were writing about, or insects or birds, what might you perceive in this studio slash closet that you can't perceive now? So um, at the start of the book, I do this exactly this thought experiment, right? I, I imagine that I'm uh, a human is sharing a physical space with a bunch of creatures, say a rattlesnake, an elephant, uh, a mouse, a dog. Um, it's hard to imagine all of those in the shoe closet with me. Uh, but but if we do, then the rattlesnake, for example, will be able to sense my body heat. Even if I switched off the light uh, in, in this closet, it would be able to detect my presence from the infrared radiation I was giving off. Um, a bird in this closet, even though we're surrounded by walls, would be able to detect the magnetic field of the earth and would know which direction uh, to fly if it was time to migrate. Um, a dog, uh, if my own dog, Typo, who's a corgi, was in this room, he'd almost certainly be sniffing around. He'd be picking up the odours um, that, uh, uh, that are abounding in this space and that I cannot detect. Um, so, you know, a, a each of these creatures, uh, we could all be sharing exactly the same physical space and have a radically different experience of that space. And that's what an immense world is about. It's about going through these um, adventures, these sensory voyages by considering the umwelten of other animals. Let's talk a little bit about vision. Um, you mentioned ultraviolet light, which we cannot see. All the colors we see are based on three colors, blue, yellow, and red. Although I really don't understand exactly. Red, green, and blue. Red, green, and blue. Wait, I thought green was blue and yellow. So um, you're thinking about primary colors like with paints. Um, for light, it's different. So for light, it's based on no red, green, R and blue. Really? Oh, I, I didn't know that. <laughs> okay, so we see red, green, and, and blue? Yes, we have three kinds of color-sensitive cells in our eyes that are most sensitive to red, green, and blue. So what are we missing? Like um, for... Insects that can see, or, or butterflies, I guess, that can see ultraviolet light. What are we missing, for instance, in flowers, which are beautiful enough with what we can see, but what are we missing? 
Uh, so flowers uh, absolutely are extraordinarily beautiful, um, but if you had the ultraviolet vision that a bee has, you'll be able to see patterns on those flowers that that we can't see. So a sunflower, for example, far from looking um, just a, a, a matte, ye a uniform yellow, would have a stark ultraviolet bullseye at its center. A lot of flowers have these ultraviolet shapes, um, like arrows and bullseyes, to guide insects towards the pollen at their center. Um, some uh, predators um, that eat pollinating insects, like crab spiders, um, blend in when uh, blend in against the flowers to our eyes, but really stand out when viewed in ultraviolet, and that acts as a lure to insects. It draws them in towards the waiting spider. One of my favorite things about the, the relationship between insect vision and, and flowers um, is that if you took all the colors um, in all the flowers that were out there and you asked what kind of eye, what kind of color vision is best at discriminating between these colors, what you get is an eye that's basically almost what a bee has, uh, an eye that um, is maximally sensitive to blue, green, and ultraviolet. And you might think then that the bee eye has evolved to see the colors of flowers really well. And that's exactly the opposite of what happened, because the bee came first, the flowers evolved later. And so the colours of flowers have evolved to ideally tickle the eyes of bees. And I think that's a, a truly wondrous result. It, it means that um, beauty as we know it is not only in the eye of the beholder, it arises because of that eye. Eyes in viewing nature's palettes also affect its paintings. Oh, it's really form follows function. <laughs> yes, right. Um, so what exactly is UV light? I mean, we know it's used to, like, sanitize things. And, you know, like my electric toothbrush has a UV light in the little cleanser unit. But in terms of vision, like, what is it and why can't we usually see it? Like the UV light in my toothbrush thing, um, when I turn it on to clean the toothbrush, I see blue. Maybe that's just a blue light bulb. I don't know. Yeah, right. right. That's the blue part of the light that you you can see. Um, so our we can see light ranging from red to violet. Right. It's the it's the classic rainbow of colors that we can perceive. Ultraviolet, literally beyond violet, exists beyond the violet end. It's just off its edge. Now there's a huge range of UV light that includes the stuff that uh, causes sunburn and that you know you, we we use to sanitize our world. But there's also a section of it. Near near UV that exists quite close to that violet that we can see um, that uh, effectively paints nature. You know, it's it's there in, in flowers, like we've said. It's there on the feathers of birds. And most other animals that can see colour can see that UV. We didn't used to think that. We used to think that it was special, that seeing ultraviolet was rare. And that, I think, reflects um, how much the limits of our own senses affect our view of the world. We, we think of things that... Uh, have different umwelten that see differently to us as being extraordinary, whereas in fact often they are they are very typical. Um, so you know, many but most birds can see ultraviolet. Most insects can do it. A lot of other mammals can do it. We're actually quite weird in not being able to see ultraviolet. Um, for a long time, scientists used to think that ultraviolet was a sort of secret communication channel that animals used to uh, to send 
coded like hidden messages that um that uh other creatures could not see sometimes that is the case there are for example um fish that look uh, completely uniform yellow but if you uh, look at them through ultraviolet um you see that they have like distinct patterns on their faces almost like running mascara um but in the main those messages aren't secret because most animals can actually see them ultraviolet abounds in the world around us and there's just a ton of stuff that we're missing you know there there are loads of birds for example including common backyard birds where we we think the males and females look exactly the same but they'll look very different to each other because they can see the ultraviolet patterns that distinguish um the sexes science writer ed young speaking to terry gross last year more after a break this is fresh air let's talk about echolocation why don't you explain what it is Echolocation is a, a very advanced form of hearing that a lot of animals like bats and dolphins use to perceive the world around them. So they make a uh, high-pitched ultrasonic calls um beyond the range of human hearing and they listen out for um the echoes of those calls after they've rebounded off objects around the animal. And by listening for those echoes and and uh, passing those echoes, they get a sense of the world around them. A bat in complete darkness can find track and swoop upon a flying insect. Um it can navigate through the darkness of a cave, it can wend its way around obstacles all by using this incredibly sophisticated uh, type of hearing. Can we compare the bat's echolocation with an animal that is really really different, dolphins? Because they use echolocation too. They're different in terms of the environment they live in, their size, their needs. So could you compare them? Yes. Um bats and dolphins are the two masters of, of echolocation in the animal kingdom and um in some ways they they use it to similar purposes but they the difference between them is mostly because uh dolphins are echolocating in the water. Uh their calls travel much further and so for them echolocation is a much longer range sense than it is for bats. A bat can only really detect a small moth within um several feet in front of it. Uh a dolphin echolocation can extend much much further and that allows dolphins for example to use echolocation um to coordinate their movements uh, to coordinate their their hunting strategies over the distance of an entire pod um dolphins can also use echolocation um kind of like a medical scanner um they can detect um hard surfaces that uh, that exist inside other animals you know a dolphin echolocating on a human could likely see your skeleton could likely see um your lungs dolphins can uh through echolocation detect the swim bladders um inside the fish that they hunt they can probably tell the difference between different kinds of prey by the shape of their um swim bladders so they have this incredible um uh, uh see-through ability um but except it's not really to do with vision right it's to do with sound so um i have a cat and a really interesting thing i learned about cats is that they have muscles in their bellies that sense vibration um can you elaborate on that 
Right. So um, many animals have um, vibration-sensitive cells uh, in their organs of touch. So, you know, I have them in my fingertips, for example. Um, it, it seems that cats have that on their bellies. Um, and one scientist I spoke to, um, you know, had this hypothesis: like, if a cat is laying down in a crouch, um, you know, do, is it also sensing um, the uh, vibrations caused by possible prey? You know, when when we see a lion watching a herd of antelope in the distance? Is it also getting information through the crouch about um, the, the footsteps of those prey? Now, I want to be very clear. We don't know the answer to that question, and it might be entirely far-fetched speculation. I write about it in the book specifically because I think it's the type of question we should be asking, because a lot of people, including scientists who work on the senses, neglect the world of vibrations, the world of seismic tremors that course through the ground and surfaces along us. You know, we we care when those vibrations move through the air; we call them sounds. But when they move through surfaces, we, we tend to ignore them, except a huge number of animals, scorpions, moles, um, elephants, many insects, seem to pay attention to that vibrational world. Um, and I think if you really start thinking about it and, look, and, and looking at it, um, you, know, you, you learn incredible things about nature that, that you might otherwise have missed. I really like the way you end the book. Um, and you write about how most people think of you know, the majesty of nature as being like canyons and mountains. But you write, equating wilderness with otherworldly magnificence treats it as something remote, accessible only to those with the privilege to travel and explore. It imagines that nature is something separate from humanity rather than something we exist within. Can you talk about that realization? Yeah, um, th this speaks to to my earlier point that if you start thinking about the umwelt of other animals, you understand that nature's magnificence is all around us. It's in our backyards. It's in our gardens. Um, you know, it's in the bodies of some of the most familiar creatures around us. My dog, um, the pigeons on the street. Um, I think that if we think of nature as something um, remote uh, and distant, you know, accessible only to someone who can go to a national park, we we lose the impetus to to savor and to protect it. I think if you understand instead that nature is everywhere, that you can go, I can go on an adventure just by thinking about the sensory world of the sparrow that sits on the house opposite me. Um, I think then nature feels like something close to me, close to my heart and close to my life. And I feel like if that's the case, people will be more motivated to try and protect it. You know, protecting nature isn't just about like saving whales or pandas or what have you. It's about protecting even things that are close to us. And because each of those things has a unique way of experiencing the world that is worth learning about, worth cherishing and worth protecting. Ed Young, it's been a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks, Terry. Always a pleasure talking to you. Pulitzer Prize-winning science writer Ed Yong speaking to Terry Gross last year. His latest book is An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. Coming up, film critic Justin Chang reviews Emily, the new film dramatizing the life of Emily Bronte before she wrote Wuthering Heights.
This is Fresh Air. Our film critic, Justin Chang, has a review of the new movie Emily, which he describes as a richly imagined portrait of the novelist Emily Bronte in the years before she wrote Wuthering Heights. The movie stars Emma Mackey as Bronte and marks the directing debut of the actress Frances O'Connor. Here is Justin's review. Given that there are few activities less inherently cinematic than writing, I'm surprised and heartened by how many good movies I've seen in recent years that have convincingly entered the lives and minds of authors. I'm thinking of A Quiet Passion, the Emily Dickinson biopic, and Shirley, about the haunting of Hill House author Shirley Jackson. You don't spend a lot of time watching these women scribbling with their quills or banging away at their typewriters, but you do get a rich sense of how their artistic sensibilities came into being. The latest fine addition to this group is Emily, which freely speculates about the life of the 19th century English writer Emily Jane Bronte in the years before she would write her one and only novel, Wuthering Heights. The movie takes significant liberties with what is known about Emily and her famous sisters, Charlotte and Anne, but as a non-stickler for biopic accuracy, I didn't mind. True or false or somewhere in between, this is an engagingly detailed and emotionally truthful portrait of a family of artists. Every character and actor leaves a vivid impression. Emily is strikingly played by Emma Mackey, the French-British actor known for her work on the series Sex Education. She was also the best thing in the recent remake of Death on the Nile. Mackie has the kind of searing gaze that cuts right through any period piece decorum, and that makes her perfect for the sardonic, self-amused Emily. She's neither as sweet as her younger sister, Anne, nor as well-behaved as her older sister, Charlotte, who's memorably played by Alexandra Dowling. Charlotte is studying to be a teacher and wants Emily to do the same, mainly to please their strict clergyman father. But Emily's natural talent is for inventing stories and writing poetry, and also for speaking her mind with a boldness that leaves others unsettled. There's a dark side to Emily, and it emerges whenever she mentions her mother's long-ago death, something the others don't like to talk about. Of all her siblings, Emily is probably closest to her fellow misfit brother, Branwell, an aspiring painter played by Finn Whitehead. Their bond becomes even stronger after Branwell drops out of art school and sinks into alcoholism and opium addiction. One day, while they're walking the Yorkshire moors, she notices three words inked on his arm, freedom in thought, a creed that also becomes her own. Don't let Aunt B see that. I don't care if she sees it or not. Freedom in thought. Mm, Yes, but you can't say it, though. You have to shout it. Freedom in thought! What are you doing? You try. No, you're being silly. I'm deadly serious. Come on. No, if someone might hear us. Oh, yeah. They might. Freedom in thought! Freedom in thought! <laughs> try it. Freedom in thought! Our pathetic attempt. Look, freedom in thought! Come on, really get behind it. Freedom in thought! Come on, give it some welly! Freedom in thought! Freedom in thought! Emily Jane, I think Reverend Miller might have just fallen off his chair in the rectory. (laughs) Good. Freedom in thought! Freedom in thought! And so Emily tells a familiar but compelling story 
of a woman rebelling against the expectations of her religious and image-conscious family. In her biggest breach of convention, she falls into a torrid romance with William Waitman, the handsome young curate who assists her father in his church duties. Emily and William, played by Oliver Jackson Cohn, initially loathe each other, which makes it all the more affecting when they surrender to their passion. Their affair is clearly laying the narrative framework for the forbidden love between Catherine and Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights. That idea might sound overly simplistic, especially if, like me, you chafe at the notion that great art can only emerge from direct autobiographical experience. But even if the movie plays hard and loose with the facts, some have speculated that there was a romantic connection between Anne Bronte and William Wademan. Mackie and Jackson Cohen bring so much heat and conviction that their love story sweeps you up in its wake. But as magnetic as Emily and William are together, their bond isn't the only one of note here. I've rarely seen a movie this attuned to the emotional complexity of sibling relationships, especially between Charlotte and Emily, whose mutual exasperation never obscures the depths of their sisterly love. Emily marks an excellent writing and directing debut for the actor Francis O'Connor, who's appeared in her own share of English literary adaptations like Mansfield Park and The Importance of Being Earnest. Her witty but unfussy script is rife with echoes of Wuthering Heights, which means it often plays like a ghost story. Much of the movie is set in dim, candlelit interiors, including one terrifying scene in which an innocent game among the Bronte siblings becomes a disturbing kind of seance. O'Connor keeps her camera tightly fixed on Emily, even at her most anguished moments, when she seems to be teetering on the brink of madness. Maybe she is, but maybe it takes a little madness to create a work of art, including a movie as good as this one. Justin Chang is the film critic of the LA Times. He reviewed the new film Emily, now in theaters. On Monday's show, for President's Day, we speak with Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer Robert Caro about the life of Lyndon Johnson. To understand his subject, Caro moved to the Texas Hill Country for three years to meet friends and associates of Johnson from his early years. At age 87, Caro is still working on the last volume of his Johnson biography. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Al Banks. We'll close with this music by New Orleans rock and roll pioneer Huey Piano Smith, who died Monday at the age of 89. He wrote and first performed this hit, which has been recorded by many others since. For Terry Gross, I'm David Cooley.